Cheated very badly, you see. What are we talking about here? There are monsters out in the cosmos that can swallow entire stars. Nothing is more seductive. <laughs> yes! Are you feeling it now, Mr. Krabs? Are you feeling it? Of course you feel it. Now, what do you want to know? What I want to know is what's going on. I think it's time to blow this thing, get everybody in the stuff together. Okay, three, two, one, it's jam. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We've got a great show for you tonight. Let's get right to it. All right, welcome to The Big Electron on KCU 88.1 FM and KCOU.FM or on our podcast. Yeah. I'm Jackie. I'm Madeline. I'm Anahita. And we're, we have a great show for you today. Um, it's yeah. All, it's all science news. Grab bag science. Yeah. We, mm -hmm. don't, we don't have a, a topic per se other than our beautiful voices communicating <laughs> to you some really cool stuff that is happening around here, uh, around the science world. So, um, yeah, just to remind you that if you want to get in touch with us, you can call us here on studio or text us. Uh, at 573-882-8262. You can also find us on our Facebook page where we are, The Big Electron, or uh, now we have a Gmail account uh, that you can email us. So we are thebigelectron.kcou at gmail.com. If you want to hear something, you know, a show in particular, some topics that interest you, you can mm -hmm. also find us in there. Ask a scientist, maybe? Ask a scientist question. Yes, absolutely. Um, and we'll do our best to, to answer answers stuff so um with that i think we can get started on our show and we have a a celebration this week this friday this friday this friday is earth day get yay. excited yay earth we like earth it's it kind of houses home. us yeah there you go home is where the oxygen and nitrogen and argon are. <laughs> in and perfect, carbon and carbon lots of carbon lots of carbons uh, yay I really love Earth Day. I remember being really, really young and going to parks uh -huh. for Earth Day like celebrations mm -hmm. and then giving trees out for free. Uh -huh. And then you like go and plant the tree like that was a lot awesome. of fun. I would like to do that. Yeah. So we have to find where in Colombia. Yeah, there's that. probably something somewhere. Yeah. I have to start Googling that. Uh, yeah, so today I was actually working in my garden because it was so beautiful outside mm -hmm. and I have no idea what I'm doing when it comes to the garden. <laughs> like I just kind of poke around and uh, seems like a good idea. Mm -hmm. So today I decided like, you know what? I kind of have this like extra area. Maybe I should plant some milkweed. Like it's it's a Missouri plant. Okay. It's, you know, a quote unquote weed. So mm -hmm. like it should be pretty easy to grow. I shouldn't yeah. be able to like screw it up that much. Um, and it's good for the butterflies. So I got really Aww. excited about the butterflies. So now I'm trying to make that happen. So wish me luck with that. Yeah, good luck. I love butterflies. Yeah. Yeah. So um, when we were talking about what we were going to you know, talk about today, I was like, well, I want to look up butterflies. Mm -hmm. And so actually in Cell Press this week, uh, there was a paper released all about butterflies, uh, monarchs specifically, because, mm. uh, you know, monarchs are what need the milkweed. Mm. Um mm -hmm. And those and, are the gorgeous 
It's like the orange, traditional yeah, butterfly. It's yeah. Stereotypical butterfly. Yeah. Orange uh, and black. And with all the crazy designs. Yeah. Yep. And then migrate Spots. down yeah. south to Mexico to places called Thousands of miles. Yeah. It's a huge migration. Mm-hmm. That happens. It's very beautiful. Yeah. We get to see it. It I've happens seen it every like, year. Yeah. Have you? I've seen it a couple of times. Is it just cool. like... It's just like a, oh my goodness, that sounds awesome. <laughs> that sounds really cool. But yeah, like, you know, the butterflies are struggling because, mm-hmm. you know, they used to have all these places that they could lay their eggs and everything. And then humans did what humans do and kind of mm-hmm. took over and didn't pay much attention to the butterflies. So now people are kind of trying to, again, plant that milkweed, plant whatever it is that yeah the butterflies need because we, we like them. They pollinate our things, mm-hmm. which is always important. But anyway, okay. Absolutely. <laughs> so this paper um, was cool because it's actually, it's like neuroscience and a bunch of equations and derivatives and stuff. And what they were wondering is how do the monarchs, how do the monarchs migrate? Mm-hmm. Um, so this whole migration takes a while, like a couple months and so, you know, you can, it's pretty easy to imagine like that an organism would be able to figure out which direction south is because, you know, the way the sun goes. I mean, and everything. somehow humans figured it out. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, you know, butterflies could do it too. Um, but one of the interesting things is the sun from the time, um, from the time that they start their migration to the time that they're done, mm-hmm. the sun is in a different spot in the sky. And so how do they account for not only like the sun moving east to west every mm-hmm. day, but also moving in the north and south direction because the seasons are changing. And yeah. so, yeah, so they have all these math equations and they did some electrophysiology and stuff. And um, so they have a really- Electrophysiology? Yeah, so basically um, some fancy- uh, some fancy machinery that you, they actually do it on an antenna. Mm-hmm. And so they can like grab onto the antenna and um, there'll be some electricity and you want to see if you can detect um, stuff on the other side. So like whether or not the neurons, if it's like communicating. In, yeah. If the neurons are firing. Mm-hmm. And, oh, okay. Yeah. So um, they do some of that and they figure out, so the antenna houses the receptors Mm -hmm. that helps them figure out like their circadian clock and the season. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. their eye tells them, well, the sun is in this horizontal position. So therefore these two things combined and there's like just a a handful. Yeah. It's just a handful of neurons figure out, well, in that case, this way South go that way. And then when it's time to, yeah, (laughs) when it's time to go the other way, go the other way. And uh, I just think it's really cool because wow. it's a pretty simple system, mm-hmm. um, which it, is always good. You kind of always want to assume that it's the most simple mm-hmm. explanation for this, you know, thing that's happening. Do they mention anything about like detecting the magnetic? They did field not. I don't of think Earth. they mentioned. Okay, because I know there's some animals. I'm trying to remember which ones that also migrate and they somehow yeah can detect probably the birds. Magnetic. Yeah. I'm thinking birds or I'm thinking whales for some reason. So I, I remember reading a study once and it was, I think they used crows specifically. Mm-hmm. And uh, the study was, do birds use um, a magnetic field? Mm-hmm. And so they kind of had this elaborate, or no, I'm sorry. 
They did it with crows, but the, the question they were trying to answer was, do other animals use magnetic fields or is it just birds? Okay. And so they were testing. They did this experiment with a crow and then they replicated it with a rat to see if okay. the rat would do the same thing. And pretty much what it was, was it was a very simple map. It was the shape of a T. Mm -hmm. And um, randomly, the crow was given a reward on either... Mm -hmm. So they were on like, if you're looking at a T, they were on the long part on the bottom mm -hmm. and a reward was either on the left or right hand side of that top part of the T. And um, it was random which one it was in, but they induced some kind of magnetic field for half of the crows hmm. that the magnetic field drew them to the right answer. Okay. And so the crows almost always, when there was a magnetic field, got the right thing. It was like one crow, I think out of like a thousand studies. Mm -hmm. It was something crazy like that messed up. Huh. And that crow just like left. <laughs> it was just like, I don't want anything to do with this experience. Not feeling it. And then with the rats, it was the same situation. The rats, when the magnetic oh. field was turned on, they would get be drawn to oh, the Oh, that's really one. interesting. Because yeah. it's not like rats do giant migrations. I don't, I hope not. Mm -hmm. But what was really cool about it is they tested it. It's totally anecdotal. So draw no res results from this. But then they did it on a graduate student. <laughs> And the graduate student just was random. It was not drawn by the magnetic field. So I thought that was kind of funny. That is funny. Huh? Yeah. Well, there you go. We think of ourselves as being special. But we don't have that intuition. Nope. But yeah, so save All the right. butterflies, everyone. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really cool. I want special powers. <laughs> I can't even figure out where South is, like, <laughs> using the sun. Well, you're <laughs> Yeah, well, the other I'm directionally thing, that's why challenged. you need a GPS. <laughs> With this paper, they also mentioned that, you know, their ability to do this has not even on a cloudy day, you oh, know, wow. stuff yeah. like that. You know, if it's if it's too cloudy, I not my, for an ajita. Yeah, no, my senses get all messed up. I thank God for the uh, compass app. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You shall never get lost again on ajita. Okay, so speaking of getting lost and speaking of south, what's happening south of... Us. You mean in Miami? We're in Miami, yeah. Because we're in Missouri. Yeah, we're in Missouri. Back in my home state in Miami, there's um, a really cool thing coming up, and it's a restaurant called Prey. And P-R-A-Y? P-R-E-Y? P-R-E-Y. Okay. It's supposed to be oh, okay. a purposeful double entendre. Oh. Um, so what's really cool about what Prey is doing is that they are focusing their menu on sustainability as many restaurants do. Mm -hmm. But the way they're going about this is by targeting invasive species of Florida okay, as a way to um, promote that sustainability. So an invasive species is any species that can be plant, animal, or fungus that is in an area it shouldn't naturally be in. Mm -hmm. um, but more so, it's also kind of destructive to that area. Mm -hmm. Because it just grows really well. It grows really well, and it's taking away food sources from other plants, animals, mm -hmm. fungi. and That, that it, are natural to... Native. Native area. to that area. Yeah. Right, exactly. And so, um, one of the examples... And so, this restaurant is doing this mostly through sushi, which is kind of fun. Hmm. Um, okay. And they're making sushi of Asian carp... Um, uh, Chesapeake Bay blue catfish, uh, different seaweeds, and then they're also using feral pigs. 
Whoa. that have kind of been running amok in Miami. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wait, pig sushi? Pig, pigs. Well, that would be that would be cooked. Yeah, that would be cooked. So it's like pig rough. tempura maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's just, I think, a really fun idea of using these these species that are, they also have non-invasive species on the sure. menu, like salmon. But um, just keeping the environment, you know, the yeah. ecosystem happy by getting rid of these creatures that are destroying the environment. Yeah, if you're going to be mm-hmm. fishing anyway. Yeah. Fish away the bad stuff. The bad stuff. And yeah. I'm sure it's delicious. And um, what's kind of, I think, kind of cool to bring it back home to us here in Missouri is one of those species I mentioned, Asian carp. Actually, on Mizzou's campus, we have the invasive Asian carp. Hmm. Um, I'm sorry. It's it's actually in the Mississippi River where it's an invasive species. Mm-hmm. But on campus, we've been using Asian carp in our dining hall food. Really? Yeah. So when there's fish, they sometimes use carp. And um, well, it's just cool. to get rid of that invasive spe- species in huh. the Missouri or Mississippi River. Huh. Yeah. Look at us. Pretty local. Yeah, yeah, so I like to think it's me. So Florida <laughs> and Missouri are Aww. both using Asian car. I'm pretty sure the campus dining services are the ones that like <laughs> looked for that. But I think Anahita is the good luck charm. That's the sustainable, it, yeah. sustainability good luck charm. And okay. I believe just um, to, you know, reference the sources or whatever, um, it's Dr. Mark Morgan, who's an associate professor in the MU School of Natural Resources that I think began the Asian carp Oh, on cool. campus thing. Awesome. So it wasn't on a hita. It wasn't on a hita. <laughs> yeah. I give up to I give it up to Dr. Morgan. That's awesome. very cool. That's I'm glad the cool. university is receptive to those kind of suggestions. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. And you know um, It's sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's it's sustainable. If you're just I mean, so Asian carp, that may not be something that you're familiar with. So you may be like, oh, that's gross. But mm-hmm. just think about it if you don't eat the Asian carp then all of those foods you do find familiar are going to go away because yeah. the Asian carp are going to get, push them out. Spray on them. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And I, I do, this is totally not have anything to do with eating Asian carp, <laughs> but another, my favorite, I guess I shouldn't say favorite, but I'll say it. My favorite invasive species or story of invasive species is hippos in South America. Okay. Have you have you heard about no. the hippos in South America? I didn't America? know there was hippos in South America. Well, naturally there aren't. However, Pablo Escobar decided to open a zoo. Oh, right, right. Uh-huh. <laughs> and as part of that zoo, he had hippos and okay. two of them, a male and female unfortunately, escape. got out. And they're just destroying <laughs> the rivers oh, in yeah. South America because wow. they're and people are getting really hurt. They're, they're, they're very hostile. Mm-hmm. They're very destructive and they are just thriving in wow. South America. <laughs> that's yeah, that's it. pretty scary. They're yeah. very scary creatures. That's why you shouldn't have exotic animals where they don't belong. Yeah, yeah and Just so that's leave what, them out. And exactly. And while that's an example of people forcing the invasive mm-hmm. species, um, the the seafood that's invasive species around Miami, mm-hmm. that's more to do with global warming and, and oh. the water around Miami warming. So different species are coming migrating in. south. Wow. So it's like, quote unquote, natural, I mm-hmm. guess, you know, yes. it's not like we intentionally did it. Nobody brought in yeah. those fish those to destroy fish. the waters. Wow. It's just how climate change has changed right. that brought the animals to. Exactly. And that's mm-hmm. how we're changing stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there is a lot of consequences to climate change. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I feel like we, we hear more, more all the time. Yeah, we hear more and more about it. I mean, Anahita, you just mentioned that. But what about... Something that 
it's affecting um, climate change or climate change is affecting us is the magnetic drift of the earth. So the north and south poles are starting to drift um, because of climate change. So when you first told me this cool. earlier, I thought you were talking about like the giant ice sheets and I was like, oh, that's weird. And then I realized I missed the word magnetic. So it's maybe the let's, magnetic drift. let's go over yeah. the magnetic poles. So, so the North Pole, um, actually both poles, the North and South, are the ones that, you know, they we know they are, we talk about them, and they have a reason to exist, and that's how Earth rotates and mm -hmm. stuff mm -hmm. like that. Um, it has been measured that they can drift as much as 10 meters over a 100-year period Okay, of time. so they kind of wobble. So they've kind of seen it, yeah. Um, so generally, yeah, they, they wobble over time and it's due to the small variations in the suns and the moon's poles and the motion in earth's, uh, core and mantle. Okay. okay. Due, due to those things. So they're, they usually, uh, tip a little bit and they move around a little bit. However, they also found, they have just found, and this was uh, recently published that they are now moving also because of the disturption, the uh, distribution of snow and rain change and drought and all these changes that are happening on the surface of Earth. Wow. Okay. So generally when they moved because of the, uh, that occurs naturally, they move uh, a little bit south. Okay. okay, so the north moves a little bit south, south moves a little bit north. Mm -hmm. But now what they're seeing is that it's moving east. Oh. oh. So it's just like taking a sharp turn hmm. and it's moving um, somewhere else. So back in 1899, they actually saw um, something similar. And that's what they're saying, you know, like every century something, mm -hmm. something happens. Um, so they back in 1899... Uh, ice mass uh, started to melt mm -hmm. and the distribution of the planet's mass changed and the North Pole started to drift west. Hmm. Uh, but then it came back, um, you know, to where it's belong and then it started having that, you know, natural motion. Mm -hmm. But now it's changing um, towards east. So around 2000, they started seeing that change. Um, instead of moving towards Canada, it started drifting along the Greenwich Meridian towards London. Hmm. So I wonder what this does. I mean, I'm sure the article that you're reading doesn't cover yeah. this, but I wonder if scientists are studying um, that, that impact changes. on animals and like this magnetic field. That I would we're guess so. About. I would assume that there would I be. I would assume I, so. As I really well. want to know if people or not people, but animals are ending up in the wrong place. Oh, and you yeah. know, having having the it's not only that also, but also the fact that how it's affecting Earth's rotation. Absolutely. And so you know that then causes more serious changes in climate. Mm -hmm. um, oh my gosh. We really so are it, in it's a just balance. like it's yeah. It just keeps keeps on going and going. Um, so it's just causing the pole to change its nature. Um, so they, they found that the recent accelerated ice loss associated with a sea level rise accounted for more than 90% of the latest polar shift. Wow. wow. Um, yeah, so Greenland started melting and 
um, they, they started seeing, seeing this. So um, this was published a couple of days ago mm-hmm. in Science, Science Advances, and it's from two, sci- two geophysicists that work at NASA Jet Propulsion Lab. And um, that's what they, they look at. They looked at, uh, it's called the Gravity Recovering Climate Experiment Satellite, which measures the changes in the Earth's gravitational field uh, compared to the North and South Pole. Poles. And so they incorporated those data and they started seeing um, how much water was on Earth. Hmm. Seeing the changes and then they, they correlated those two together. Um, <clears throat> so they saw that there was uh, this flip happening. They think that this flip is constantly happening mm-hmm. all over time. Um, but with this one, um, they, they started seeing those changes. And so they, they saw, like I said, um, that it was melting, Greenland mm-hmm. started melting, but also in Europe and Asia, there has been a drought for the last 10 years. Okay. And so that is also, with less rainfall on a continent over time, there's also a sudden shift that can explain possibly why it's moving east huh. instead of west, instead of south. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that the drought plus more water, it's causing change in, in the magnetic drift. Um, they don't attribute, like, they don't necessarily attribute the recent climate change to man-made climate change. Okay. Um, one of them says, me personally, I believe that this is a re- this is a result of human activities. But the mm. other author says, no, um, we don't know yet. Sure. So what, there's, really what they're say. doing, yeah, so what they're going to look now is they're going to look at data um, a little bit more closely over time. They said, like, in about six months and see if it's linked to climate change, um, to how the pole moves, to see the changes in Earth's climate, and then see whether or not um, our, you know, our, we are causing, we are causing, mm-hmm. yeah, are contributing yeah. to. It's just crazy how delicate of a balance. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's just crazy how delicate of a balance Earth is in. Yeah. And that. Yeah. We don't realize that we just think, oh, we're just rotating and all this stuff. <laughs> right. Just a small change. And huh. I mean, and, and everything we've just discussed so far on the show, if we just kind of mess with the earth and the ways we're talking about, you know, that affects the butterflies, yep. it causes invasive species to come in and, you know, day and night are going to be different. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the seasons and rotation yeah. and, you know, like all that stuff that, yeah. That's. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's I also crazy have stuff. a lot of respect for the people who study this stuff. Oh mm-hmm. my gosh, that's a lot of things to have to get taken into consideration. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. The drought. It's and... so hard to control for yeah. the earth constantly changing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's why there's a lot of data collection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's just satellites collecting data. And it's kind of unfortunate because oh, so it's going to take. And then they, they, yeah. then people have to come in and then take a look at it. It's going to take so. like hundreds of years before we know if it's you know an isolated situation right yeah but crazy at least for now we're seeing and that there's a change and Mm -hmm. we might be able to check if we're one of the reasons that's causing it so wow just in time for earth day for earth day just to keep that in mind be thankful (laughs) for our earth yep yep all right we're gonna go on our first musical break you're listening to the big electron on kcou 
All right, welcome back to The Big Electron here on KCUU 88.1 FM or KCUU.FM. Thanks for listening. So we're talking about now um, just science news and something that I saw that happened recently and I was pretty excited to see was uh, our university and all the cool stuff that we're doing. <laughs> and this came up, uh, this was on, on a national website. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and, they, and it made... It made news. Um, it's from the universe, the College of, in of Engineering, um, mm -hmm. okay. and so what they're what they were looking at is this group uh, from bioengineering, and they're using, hear me out, methods borrowed from textile industry, okay, to produce tissues or engineering tissues um, huh. and making them cheaper. Oh. So, like, no. what kind of tissues are we talking about? Like skin grafts, and like stuff? like skin and a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, mostly, they're using it for scaffolds. Um, okay. Mm -hmm. So, tissue engineering—it's a process that uses biomaterials that are seeded with stem cells uh, mm -hmm. that can grow and replace some missing tissues in our body. And this is something that mm. it's up and coming, and it's, it has proven. Um, We've seen it in, in it has made national news um, and it's mm -hmm. it's really promising because it's coming from that person's cells. So mm -hmm. you wouldn't have the issue of rejection, rejection, rejection mm -hmm. right? Because your body already recognizes it as, it as right. self. It's, it's your, yeah, yeah, it's your own thing. Whereas, you know, a lot of things happen uh, during organ transplant mm -hmm. that your body the body rejects it because mm -hmm. it's it comes from someone else so that's why uh tissue engineering it's it's up and coming um and pretty much what they use uh it's they kind of build scaffolds that are created to hold the stem cells that eventually these scaffolds degrade and they leave the natural tissue in its place cool mm -hmm. the problem or the challenge that that is happening is creating enough of this material that doctors need to treat patients. Okay. Because right now it's all, you know, research and stuff. And, you know, if you're trying to build Small scale a whole muscle, you know, it's yeah. gonna take a little bit. It's gonna take some money and, and a lot of a lot of materials. So what they are um <clears throat> why why do we need uh tissues? For example, if you are a patient with diabetes, mm -hmm. okay. you lose tissues. Uh you get you get some wounds. Um from tissues or if you have uh, circulation disorders, um, if you need a cartilage or bone repair, or mm -hmm. uh, even for women who had mastectomies um, huh. to replace their breast mm -hmm. tissues instead of having implants, yeah, you, know, nice. you can just whew, regrow them. Um, so in this case, what they did is um, they usually use um, typical tissue engineering. They use fibers as scaffolds. That is uh, non-woven materials that are often bonded together and then um, create the scaffolds that are then attached to the stem cells and then you can, uh, then you can put them in. The problem mm -hmm. is that the large scale production is not very cost, cost effective. Mm -hmm. um, it produces weak fibers and they are not consistent mm -hmm. and they have pores that are too small. So, you know, mm -hmm. you can do this over and over again for hours and you only create like a 10 inch diameter of scaffold material and then you need to test it, oh standardize boy. the process. <laughs> so just one patient it's just could one take thing after the all other, day after to the figure other. out. Yeah. Yeah. And so instead they thought, well, what if instead we 
investigate process that, you know, how you make clothes or mm -hmm. how you make, mm -hmm. you know, you're still like building things. Uh -huh. You're still like moving things together. So why don't we use that instead uh, to scale up the manufacturing process? Cool. So this is what they did. Uh, they used three common textile creation methods that are called melt, melt blowing, spoon bonding and carding. Um, and they would see if they could use these method, methods to create the, the materials that were needed to create, to create this, the scaffolds. Hmm. So what they did, um, just to give you an idea, melt blowing is a technique that where you have uh, non-woven materials, they're created using a molten polymer and they create continuous fibers. Okay. And then mm -hmm. you can bring the stem cells in. Okay. Spoon bond materials I made about the same way, except that the fibers are drawn into a web with a solid state instead of a molten one. Okay. So instead of melted, you have a solid state. That's okay. kind of the same thing. And then carding involves the separation of the fibers through the reuse of rollers and then they form the web that it's needed to hold uh, the stem cells. Okay. Mm. So the team tested these these three think techniques with a material that is called poly polylactic acid scaffolds. That is an FDA approved material that is used as a collagen filler mm -hmm. seeded with stem cells. And um, they tested it, and they the cells remained healthy over. They, they wanted to see if the cells still remained healthy, if they could differentiate into fat and bone and, um, you know, create mm -hmm. different, different tissues. So what they found is that these methods are more viable than the previous one that was being used. That's really so cool. So the, hmm. the first one, um, the cost for a small sample would be somewhere between 2 to $5. For this other methods... They range between thirty cents to three dollars wow. for the exact same material, and it's um, they are effective and efficient, um, and probably consistent. Yeah. I mean, I think you it's pretty in impressive. Like the fact that we can go to a store and buy a five dollar shirt, you know that oh, yeah. you know there's a million of them that look mm -hmm. exactly the same is really very impressive. So it's you know mm -hmm. a good source to be pulling from. That's very cool. I yeah. mean the like fashion industry, textile industry would not have been successful um, in the way it stands unless there was yeah, like it, unless consistency amongst, yep, exactly. And consistent, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I really love this. This is just a fantastic example of using a technology that exists mm -hmm. and just changing the goal. Changing it, repurposing it. Right. Repurposing it, yeah. There's it's just, yeah, it's just a way that um, they actually collaborated with people from North Carolina, NC State, and from someone from NC State College of Textiles. Cool. Like they brought in some an expert from yeah. textiles and then, Good. then used it differently for tissue bioengineering. Mm -hmm. So, you know, now, now they're trying to see, well, which one of these three is, is a more efficient and um, they're going to start testing it in, in animals and see how that goes. So that's really cool. Awesome. That's pretty cool. Awesome yeah. example of collaboration. It makes me wonder, like, was this someone's actual idea or did these people just meet and, you know, at some social event and <laughs> they were just talking about Yeah, stuff. my advisor and her husband always say, like, I don't know, some crazy made up 
number like 97% of science is done at a bar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you're just like just talking about socializing stuff. with yeah. other professors. Right. You were like, well, what do you do? Oh, I do this. But well, what yeah. do you do? I do this. And then all of a sudden. And then, you know, three yeah, years later, smart. you're <laughs> like, hey. hey, we should do something together. <laughs> yeah. 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 Because, yeah. you know, it's the method is there. You're just yeah. repurposing mm-hmm. it on something else, which I think it's pretty cool. That is super cool. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, all this work um, says here, um, it's, uh, let me tell you, it's actually the dean um, of the College of Engineering, Elizabeth Laboa, hopefully I'm pronouncing it right, um, mm-hmm. and she worked with a grad student um, from her group, Stephen Tuin. Um, mm. Very and, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So, you know. Some, some cool stuff happening in, in the Department of Engineering and College of Engineering here. Absolutely. Okay, I want to talk I want to talk about this study. It's only one study. Okay. I'm going to say. So it there's the more work assault. there's more work to be done in this sure. field, but it has to do with how Brett funding students. Well, it's how funding mm-hmm. agencies impact um, our future careers. Okay. As graduate students now. And so the study was done using the National Institutes of Health, so NIH, um, which supports graduate students in three ways. You can either be an RA or a research assistant. Mm-hmm. And then in that case, you're on your PI's grant. PI okay. is principal investigator. Right. That's so your advisor. Mm-hmm. Um, you can be the recipient, recipient of a fellowship or you can be on a training grant that your university is granted mm-hmm. through the NIH. So um, we're, uh, the study looks at the students, the graduate students that came out of these three branches okay. from 2001 to 2010. And it was something like 45,000 graduate students were used in the study. Okay. And what they found was, well, first of all, um, the RAs uh, was the most common this was the mo- um, overwhelmingly so. Yeah, that makes sense. It was, um, I think, almost seventy-five percent. If I'm reading this correctly. Yeah, the other two huge. are kind of more um, prestigious. I would say, like, yeah, yeah. you have so to be really competitive to get really those other ones. Really good, yeah. Like the NSF. Well, even though they looked at NIH data, uh, right? But still, to get a fellowship, it's really, really competitive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have like. And so this isn't you getting the fellowship either. It's your, I'm sorry, you getting the assistantship. It's your advisor having developed a proposal and you're just kind of. The hands that he said he would get to do it. Right. You kind of reap the benefits of someone else's work. So that's an RA. Right. And so overwhelming percentage is RA. But what the study pointed out was that there have been arguments recently that an RA is an inferior educational experience Hmm. that you are under the circumstances of an RA, you are controlled by the faculty member and there uh-huh. is no incentive for you to develop past whatever that research project you're on is. Oh. Because unless, th- that's the thought process behind okay. this anyway. Unless you produce successful results. Uh-huh. That is publications. As an RA, yeah, that's publications. Then you, unless you do that, then you failed. Okay. And so as an RA, you don't care about anything, but it's that one-mindedness to the publication that we've talked about before on Mm -hmm. the show. And and in that aspect, it's flawed that you're not getting that a full roundedness that you would have gotten under one one of these other two. 
And, this, and the full roundedness, we mean like professional development. Right. The ability and, to uh, seek out your interest as opposed uh -huh, to being told, else. this is your and project. This is what ideas. you have to do. Develop your Correct. ideas. Yeah. Of the three. Host a radio show if you want to. Of the three, a competitive fellowship was um, seen as giving you the most leeway because we, we already talked about the RA, but the training grant award of the university would probably have stipulations that dictate how you should be trained. Oh, and while yeah. that would be more rounded than an RA, it's not individualized the way that a fellowship would be. Okay. In a fellowship, you get to pick what you do. Yeah. And uh, a lot of times you get to pick who you who you work with more. Exactly. You have more freedom yeah. in that regard. Because mm -hmm. basically you're the one that's bringing your own funding. Mm -hmm. So you don't depend on those, this professor to tell you right. um, who is paying you. Yeah. And so from these, um, so going back to this 40,000 students that they looked at, what they saw is that- and these, and these were graduates? These were students who earned PhDs from 120-ish research universities over a nine-year period. Okay. So it was specifically the students that actually received PhDs mm -hmm. were the ones that were included in the study. And why that's important is because it's all about what happens after you get a PhD. Mm -hmm. Of the students that are on RA, or I'm sorry, when you compare the three groups of students, those that were on an RA are 11% more likely to enter a research-related job after graduation as huh. opposed to the other two groups. Okay. Um, so that's saying we have this group of students who possibly are being trained in a slightly more flawed way mm -hmm. and they're more likely to enter research. Um, than these other groups. So I can't decide, huh. like, that seems like a good thing, right? To be, I don't know. Cause it, it kind of paid off. That yeah, it paid off. You were on you, a, and then you moved on to yeah. another research position. So some of the questions that this, probably yeah. good some of these questions for. that brings up though is, are you seeking a research position? Cause that's all you know. And you weren't uh, given the uh -huh, opportunity uh -huh. to develop your um, uh -huh. other interests. Whereas in the other ones where you were developed to, the, uh -huh. right. to do other stuff, then you're like, oh, actually, I like this. I like yeah. this other thing more. Uh -huh. and so Like hosting a radio show. <laughs> but you're right that it's good. This, the people who do end up in research are, are really good. Are yeah. really good. They were really trained to be researchers. And so that- And that, we need that. That's yeah. great. That's not something to, to be upset about. Mm -hmm. um, so- just as an interesting note, Dr. Paula Stefan, who was a uh -huh. guest on our show, show last the, week. Yeah, last week. Um, she said, um, and I quote, I spent a lot of time talking to unhappy postdocs, people who haven't taken the time to think about whether it's really they, something they want to do. So maybe this trend of, you know, to input my own thought, of people only being in research if uh -huh. they are RAs, maybe that actually has something to do with the fellows and trainees exploring other career options rather than just this automatic postdoc is next. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's yeah. That's kind really of changing, changing the mindset of mm -hmm. what comes after you graduate. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. really important. Mm -hmm. A lot of introspection has to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just as a quick stat, um, among all graduates taking research jobs, according to a study, 84% are headed to a postdoc. That wow. number is decreasing. Mm -hmm. um, and then those that are RAs are more likely to take a non-postdoc position and enter straight into industry. 
But they're still doing research. But they're still they, doing research. It's still like scientific instead yeah. of right. just what they call non. Yeah, non-academic, non-research. Now that I'm thinking about that, that seems counterintuitive. So 84% of graduate students... Go into postdocs. There's postdocs in industry, though. Okay. So, you know, they're they're starting to get increased because if you go and look at the job market right now, they say, we want you to have at least two or three years Mm -hmm. of postdoc Mm -hmm. experience before we hire you in industry. um, Mm -hmm. uh, It's now also doing the postdoc stuff because postdocs used to be mostly at the academic level universities. Mm-hmm. And now um, there's also opportunities for postdocs in industry. So this so is something that was kind of interesting about this study is um, so it, that to make sure that it was all, um, all good. NIH did not want to fund it at first <laughs> because no they're like, we want no bias. We want no conflict of interest, but they did end up, um, funding it, however, it was executed um, with a co-sponsor from NSF, cool. and so the um, they're looking to see if NSF how studying those graduate students would change would yeah, change because they were results. looking at only biomedical students. Yes, right? only biomedical Medical students graduates, mm-hmm. and if we start looking at people in the NSF, then you're encompassing all of the sciences, right? Yeah, which is a broader. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So think these. Just one Just study. So <laughs> it could totally change. Yeah, but right. It really, um, but opens up more questions, right? And that's how you get more answers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I, I don't know. I don't think it's a bad idea to have more specialization. So the research, yeah. research scientists are trained to be research scientists. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's just the only problem is if you go in and get caught in a draft of one of those career paths. Yeah. Like if you're if you're not an RA, are you pushed out of Research a little oh, more. Oh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Surely not. Yeah. I don't know. The opposite. Well, who knows? Yeah, who knows? Who knows? It's yet to be seen. Mm-hmm. So, and that would be one of those things. If you're aware of this trend, you can make sure and be like, "Well, why am I doing this? Right. Is it because it's what I want to do, or is it because I've kind of always assumed it's what's expected? It's of what's me. next? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the next step is just this because that's all you've been told yep. in your academic career. So. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's pretty interesting. Um, with that, we're going to go on a short musical break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Big Electron on KCOU.FM. All right, welcome back to The Big Electron on KCOU.FM. Thank you for listening. So, if I tell you the following names, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Alan Turing, Albert Einstein, Stephen Hawking, John Nash. Geniuses? Exactly. (laughs) Very smart people, right? So Mm -hmm. you would, would you expect if you compared their brains to a normal person, (laughs) do you think they would have like more brain activity? activity, More things going on? I would assume so. Yeah. Well, some people, um, uh, a group of neuroscientists actually wanted to look at that. Uh, this was in France, and this was recent. This was published this week, and what they wanted to see was: Do mathematicians? They focus on mathematicians. Do mathematicians use different parts of the brain mm-hmm. than other people? Just normal mm-hmm. people that are not mathematicians mm-hmm. um, when doing mathematical operations. So what they found, um, they use this thing called functional magnetic resonance imaging um, to scan Mm -hmm. the brains. And they use 15 professional mathematicians and 15 non-mathematicians of the same academic standing. So say probably like professor in chemistry, Mm -hmm. in English, English, and you know, like 
kind of the same the same ranking. And what they do is they wear put it into the scanner and they listen to a series of 72 high level mathematical statements. And it, it was algebra analysis, geometry, and topology. And <clears throat> they added 18 non-mathematical statements, okay. mostly historical. And they had four seconds to reflect on each statement and mm -hmm. say whether it was true, false, or meaningless. That's oh, all they had mm -hmm. to say. And so they found that in the mathematicians in the mathematicians only, when they listened to math-related statements, they activated a network of uh, regions of the brain that involved the bilateral, intraparietal, dorsal, prefrontal, and inferior temporal region of the brain. So, what is this? Um, what does this mean, right? Um, this this circuit of, of parts of the brain. Mm -hmm. um, it's usually not associated with areas involving language processing and semantics, mm, okay. um, where uh, they were both, uh, when both mathematicians and non-mathematicians were presented with the non-mathematical statements, uh -huh. the areas in language processing and semantics, they were, um, they were activated. Okay. But when they, when only the mathematicians, when the mathematical statements were given to the mathematicians, mm -hmm. these other areas were, um, were given. And so uh, these other areas are associated with knowledge of numbers and space. Okay. So it's mostly sure. relating to um, non-linguistic areas that, that hmm. activated for that. Something really cool that they mentioned in this article was that we, um, all this, this areas that they're using, it's the same areas that are active when we're performing just regular sum and subtraction. Oh, okay. That it's mm. the same um, seeing a just uh -huh. basic mathematical problem. So these fancy mathematicians are like just doing the same thing as when I figure out my tax or, you know, when I figure <laughs> out my tip at the restaurant. Except yeah. that they have it, you know, more developed yeah, yeah. when you use because you use... All it's these like parts of the a brain. muscle that's been trained. Uh -huh. yeah. A muscle, a muscle that's been tra trained. And so, actually, they they said that humans are born with an intuitive sense of number of numbers, mm -hmm. quantity, mm -hmm. and arithmetic, arithmetic uh, manipulation that are very related to spatial representation. So we look at it okay. more from a space per perspective rather than a linguistic perspective. Yeah. Um, so how the, the connection is formed, um, they still don't know. Okay. They, but at least they, they saw this question of whether, um, is it, is it a biological foundation that can be built onto a, you know, like a master mm -hmm. group theory uh -huh. or is it, is it something, um, it's, it's something else that, uh, that gets activated hmm. when, when you happen to like math and when you become... <laughs> A mathematician. So cool. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, I have something to briefly talk about kind of related, um, in terms of, you know, neuroscience and stuff like that. Um, but I found a paper that was talking about, um, the neuropsychology of procrastination mm -hmm. and uh, it's a, you know, they study a bunch of undergrads because that's what psychologists usually have <laughs> an abundance of access to. Um, and I just have to say my favorite part of this was that, there was a correlation between people's um, 
tendency to procrastinate and age. So the older students mm-hmm. procrastinated more. And I was like, well, that sounds like a whole lot of senioritis. Mm-hmm. Um, and they speculate too, that this could be because the young students are bushy, you know, bright eyed oh, and bushy tailed yeah. and really excited to learn all the things. And then by the time, you know, Just you reach that upperclassman status, you're out. like, I know how this works. <laughs> I know I what I got to do. Yeah. Can we just, can we just get out of here? Oh. So yeah, it was pretty cool. That was pretty cool. That is kind of a, cool. a relevant time of year for that too. I'm sure all the seniors are. <laughs> yeah. On that note, I want to add something really quick about procrastination. Um, the National Science Foundation was having a lot of problems kind of about procrastination, was having a lot of problems with their merit review system. Okay. They were just getting so many proposals that there was no way that they could actually review them in a reasonable amount of time and really decide who deserves funding and who doesn't. So after several ideas and tests, uh, they decided the way to ease the strain on the merit review system was to get rid of deadlines. Oh, Oh, that seems so opposite. Yeah. And by getting rid of deadlines, less people just start it by a half. They had half as many proposals. You've already selected for the people who are self-initiated. Right. And, you know. Hi, Columbia. You listen KCOU 88.1 FM. Have a groovy time. Yeah. So these people are already the kind of people that you would like to give your money to. Yeah. It's just an interesting human experiment, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, we all. Need I guess deadlines. it just goes to show that the older you get, the more you procrastinate. <laughs> <Maybe>. on, <laughs> and that you need to give yourself deadlines if you actually want to get, get something. If you want to get something done, otherwise you're just gonna keep on going, going and on going. Yep. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, that does it for deadline. us. Yeah, yeah, this is our deadline for the day. Uh, that does it for us. Thank you so much for listening. If you're listening on KCUU 88.1 FM, KCUU.FM, or if you're listening on our podcast, thanks for listening. We'll be right back next week with something really, really cool. I would I'm say the look- most interesting topic so far. <laughs> Ever. Yeah. We're going to talk about our own research. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, have a good night and we'll be back next week.